frankly, I'm a little bit in love. Not in that kind of way, but kind of in the intellectual way. Because I met someone who's like, I think I get you, and uh, I appreciate you. And that's why when I find someone like that, I tend to fall in love a little quickly. Ask my wife of 25 years. She's seen it happen before. Hopefully, this will be a much longer uh, relationship than most of those little mini intellectual crushes. But I will say this. For podcast listeners, and by the way, we're live streaming this, and my camera looks like absolute crap because I'm having tech issues, but she looks marvelous, simply marvelous. And for podcast listeners, I'm going to start it out this way. Beth, my wife will fight you for your hat. I'm saying this because Beth is wearing a Yellowstone Dutton Ranch hat, which my wife Elizabeth and I have just started watching, well, I guess we're probably in season three of Yellowstone, starring Kevin Costner and others, including, I think, just about everybody's favorite female character, which is Beth Dutton, who's played by an Irish actress or an English actress, English. but you would never know it. What Do you know her? what her name is? I don't off the top of my head, but I will tell you that this hat is also second in my attire lineup because my first favorite is a yellow t-shirt that says, and I quote, in a world filled with Karens, be a Beth. There you go. Because <laughs> Beth Dutton, if you watch Yellowstone, Beth Dutton is a force of nature that you do not want to cross. In fact, they've had several episodes that have had bears as kind of major plot points. I think those bears go running away from Beth Dutton because, my God, she is, as she said, you're the trailer park and I'm the tornado. She's the bigger bear. <laughs> yeah, she is the much bigger bear, which is kind of a good description for Beth Fisher, too, because you are not only as fearless as Beth Dutton from Yellowstone, but dare I use another word with a suffix of less, which is remorseless? Yes. The reason I say that is because Beth has written a book. Her book is called Remorseless, Learning to Lose Labels, Expectations, and Assumptions Without Losing Yourself. Now, I want her to talk, but I just want to set it up for her, which is, as you know, this podcast is all about knowing yourself, and her book is about not losing yourself. So I want to investigate that kind of intersection. When you say remorseless... How to learn to lose labels, expectations, and assumptions without losing yourself. Can you define remorseless for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So remorseless means without guilt, in spite of wrongdoing. Without guilt, in spite of wrongdoing. So I'm a big believer that many of us make decisions in life based on guilt, based on the shoulds, right? Shoulds is my absolute, probably least favorite word in our language. And you know, DP, that I love words. <laughs> so I just, I don't like the shoulds. I don't like the guilt. I don't like the labels, the assumptions, the expectations. I was the recipient of many, many labels growing up and oftentimes still am. The difference is today I know who I am. And so I don't succumb to those labels. Whereas in the past, I very much tried to. And I'm convinced, as I wrote in the book, that we do one of two things when people try to categorize us based on labels and expectations and assumptions. We either try to live up to those expectations or we go the other way and try to defy those expectations. And in either case, 
we end up showing up in a way that is not authentic to ourselves. We end up living with guilt as opposed to without it. And so I did that for many, many years. Yes. And I love teaching people, you know what, be who you were created to be because you've always known who that is. You've just gotten off of the track due to people assuming things about you and the expectations all around us. Well, longtime listeners of this podcast will recognize a lot of concepts that we have in common, especially regarding the fact that you need to know who you are so that you can be truly who you are. Or as I like to say, know who you are so you can be it. You have to know who you are. Now, you implied that we've always known who we are, but we don't necessarily align the who we know ourselves to be with the life we choose to live. And in fact, we seek labels to apply labels to ourselves, ranging from, I'm a graduate of this university, I have this degree, I go to this church. Not only do I go to this church, but this flavor of this specific religion. And it gets down to this kind of micro-niching of labels to prove that you are, I guess, signifying that you are a member of a tribe or that you ascribe to a certain mindset or set of rules, etc. And you're all about trying to take those labels out. I was reading in your book today that if anyone's kind of a label-phobic person, that would be you. And you talk about why that is. What are labels to you? And why do you have such a deep aversion to them? Yes, utter disdain. Uh, labels to me are adjectives. They are descriptors to describe who people think we are. And I will tell you, the reason I have such disdain is because I have been labeled multiple adjectives over the course of my almost 50 years, ranging anywhere from dumb, smart, pretty, terrible, ugly, fat. I mean, all, all of the, the myriad of, I guess, the range of adjectives, right? And many in polar opposition to one another. So in my head, when I would hear those, I would, th I would just kind of think, stop and think, which one is it? And is there any sort of middle ground? And what do I actually believe? But I wasn't able to act to land on what I believe because I would have people that I really thought knew me. I really thought saw me and understood me. And I had that sense of belonging that we all crave. So I would put actually way more weight on the labels that they prescribed to me than I would with people that did not know me as well. And so for me, the, the disdain comes in the, the shape of you don't really know me. If you did, I'd like to know what adjectives you'd really use. I'd like to know what you'd really think. I'd also like to have a discourse that says, if you know me, you know I'm going to push back. And you know that what I'm going to say is, why do you think that? I'm not going to say I'm going to ask it because I am a questioner. I'm the consummate, inquisitive, always have been, which sort of goes to my point of I, I've the way that I was at age three is the way that I am 47 years later. It's just who I've always been. So for me, it's, a questioning of why do I believe this person? That's what I've had to reconcile over the course of my journey. I've had to ask myself the harder question of why did you listen to that? Why did you believe that? And why did you show up like that to make them feel better is really all they, you know, always the answer. The answer is that when people define us, when people say you are fill in the blank, smart, pretty, hot, ugly, stupid, again, go on with the list. It's honestly to make themselves, it's to make them oftentimes feel more comfortable in your presence, to make them feel greater than rather than opposed to presumably lesser than, right? So my experience has taught me that people are rooting for you 
two-way point. They want you to succeed up until such time as they feel threatened by you or they feel like, well, that's a little too much for me to take, so now I'm going to bring them back down. It's very middle school behavior. And that's that's been the roller coaster. That's been the ebb and flow of my life until I finally said I'm done. I'm no longer going to listen to those labels because I already know. I already know. And it's exhausting trying to, again, either live up to those defined labels by others or rail against them. Because either way, it's sort of a lose-lose proposition. Yeah, you know, I just find my head nodding off my neck when I talk to you because you say things a little bit differently than I do, but they're really the same thing, which is I see people, especially when they're young, try to apply labels to them to give them authority. You know, I have this BA in this, an MBA in that. You know, it's often been said that anyone who's gone to Harvard will let you know they've gone to Harvard within the first two minutes of meeting them because they're seeking to apply that Harvard label to themselves to impress you, to, I don't know, achieve a level of authority that uh, they can lord over you, whatever it is. But people seek for external validation of who they are or what their narrative of themselves is rather than truly knowing who they are. Because to me, labels are all just kind of packaging things they they're on the outside of the package rather than the product inside the package if you will when it comes to personal branding so what do i mean by that well i mean a lot of the stuff doesn't apply like if you say well i'm a medical doctor that's a key part of my brand i go not necessarily because a key part of your brand is actually far deeper or far more first principle than that which is I'm a really analytical person. Okay, you're analytical, which is great. And yet I have a really human side that makes me a great empathetic person. So when that allows me to listen more deeply and use my analytical mind to then diagnose more accurately. Oh, so you're an analyst who's an empath. Now let's find a third word and you've got your personal brand foundation kind of nailed, dude. And none of that has to do with medical doctor. None of that has to do with a degree. It has to do with who you are. I'm an empathetic analyst who then what does what? Well, I'm really good at getting people to actually take that diagnosis and achieve great results because, because what? I guess I've inspired them to do it. Oh, you're an inspirational analyst who's also empathetic. That makes you a great doctor do you see the doctor doesn't come in yet it's it's about the first principle ideas and i, I want to point to you beth and say after reading your book you have a great personality but as you write about that kind of feisty intellectual part of you a lot of guys say that i really like the feisty intellectual part of you until can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. All day long, I can talk about that, yes. And I do write about that. I share a piece of that, which is as follows. Men in particular have, at least, again, in my experience, been enamored by that. Wow, she's so funny. She likes sports. She's educated. She can keep up, right? She's interesting, again, with the labels and the adjectives and the descriptors. So there's an immediate sort of, I guess, attraction to that. People are drawn to that. Men in my lifetime have been drawn to that. And so they seek to be around that. 
And they sometimes have been able to be around it for longer times than others, right? I.e. I dated, right? Throughout my upbringing, I had one boyfriend. I was married right out of college and then I was remarried. So it's a longer story. But throughout those times and even, you know, after my first two marriages ended in divorce, it's because of the second part of that, which is they might be enamored by that. They might be attracted to that. They might seek to win that. But once they have that, then all of a sudden it's a different story. For everything that they thought they wanted in me, they began to no longer like that about me and in me and instead felt threatened by it, especially throughout their own insecurities, throughout their own questioning. If they did not know who they truly were and their worth and their mattering and their value and all the things that they were incredibly gifted at, then I somehow became the benchmark by which to say, I'm no good. Who does she think she is? So then it became that middle school mentality again to sort of tear me down, put me in my place and no longer like me. And as I wrote in the book, I became very confused. I thought, I've not changed. Why do their feelings about me change? Because I remember very, very specifically when I was the recipient of their adoration, when I was the recipient of them saying, you're the best, you're amazing. I've never met anybody like you in my lifetime. You're so special. All the words, right? And then it was, I can't stand you. Why do you think you're so smart? You're not funny. You don't have a lot of friends. It was the antithesis of everything that they originally portrayed to be their feelings, you know, about me. And then it was the opposite. And I thought, well, I'm confused. <laughs> okay. Part of my brand is to be provocative. I mean, three key words, phrases, whatever. I call them the key three. My key three, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, are creative, collaborative, and provocative. The big P is the most important one. And sometimes when I'm being provocative, I'm not trying to ever be unkind, but sometimes I'm trying to jolt people kind of intellectually to think a little bit more uh, or think differently or look at things differently. So if I say something that might trigger something, I apologize in advance, expect good intent, you know, just assume good intent on everything I say. That's my way of saying, I'm going to tell you something that's not related, but it's metaphorical to the thing you described, which is don't live where you want to vacation. What does that mean? My entire life, I wanted to live in the mountains of Colorado. And guess what? I lived in the mountains of Colorado. I thought I'd ski, rock climb, mountain bike every day, all that stuff. And the reality is, no, you don't do that. You have to paint the kids' room. You have to fix some plumbing. You've got to go to down the hill into Denver, into Lakewood to go to Costco. And that's a half a day trip because it's always going back up the hill into the mountains. And what a pain that is. And all of a sudden you realize the romance of living in the mountains is actually uh, blown out of the water by the realities of oh, I'm living in the mountains and everything is a two-hour drive away from here, round trip, if not more. And that's a drag. I lived where I loved a vacation. Well, and I'm going to let you apply that to you or anything you're talking about there. But the reality is those gentlemen who said, I love your feisty nature and stuff like that is, I love it in small bites. Or, you know, I, I like it for a period of time, but I don't want to live there. Mm -hmm. And the key thing is you've embraced 
the feisty, intellectual, exciting, interesting, extroverted part of yourself without fear or a, any type of hesitancy because you've reached an age where you go, you know what? I don't care anymore. I'm not going to try to change myself to suit something that I, I can't even follow what you want, dude. Well, that is a it's a losing game. Mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. try to match something if I can't even follow what that something is. How would I embrace what I am, what people around me have identified and recognized and reflected back to me as valuable about myself? And the part of that is accept the fact that I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea. It took me a long time. Oh, my God. That takes a lot of power to do that. And I think that power comes because you've been through let's just say miles of barbed wire and broken glass and mud and piranha filled swamp in your life. And you don't need to go into any more detail than you care to about that, but you've had a, a more difficult life than I think a great many people have. And yet you've come out the other side stronger for it. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, where did where did your resilience come from? Because remorseless is one thing, and you are apparently remorseless from what I can tell, but you've got this core resilience in you that I think is kind of your superpower, Wonder Woman. Yes, it is a bit. And I'll tell you, it wasn't always the case. It came and went, and a lot of it was through those rough experiences that you spoke about. And I'll talk about those in, in a second. But what I heard you say, you almost said the word abandonment. And I want to camp there for a second because you're absolutely right. Fear of abandonment was the result of those years of experientially hard seasons of life. Fear of abandonment was because of those times when I said, I tore that defense mechanism down. And I said, sure, I believe the words you're speaking to me right now. Let's be in a relationship. I believe that you love me unconditionally. And time and time again, my experience proved the opposite of that, which is they loved me until, like you said, it was no longer small doses, but it was like, hey, here I am. We're, we're in this thing. Let's spend our lives together. Let's spend an inordinate amount of time together in the case of my first, I don't know, 10-year relationship pre-marriage. And until they got to the point that they were just completely done, I believed still very much in the power of words and actions aligning. I believed in the power of showing up authentically and then bit by bit, chip away by chip away, I became a lesser version of myself to make them feel better. And so that fear of abandonment was great for, in me for many, many years thereafter. And I think that's the result of what many people who do know who they are, but then sort of succumb again to those relational descriptors and labels, that that's what happens. They say, you know, I'm done. I got to that point in my late 30s where I was absolutely done. My second husband had left me. And yes, when I was 25, I was diagnosed with leukemia and there was still is no cure. And they said, you're going to die. So in my very early years, 20, I just turned 25 years old and sort of parenthetically here, my daughter turns 25 tomorrow. So it's a really interesting time for me in retrospect and reflection to say, wow, tomorrow she is the age that I was when I was diagnosed with an incurable kind of cancer. And I was hard on myself. I thought, you deserve this. This is God's punishment to you for going through a divorce. P.S. My husband left me, so I didn't really have much say in the matter. But 
I still took on that ownership of it's my fault. I'm a failure. We talked about this a little bit. I'm a three on the Enneagram. I am very much about achieving. And I'm also a very secondary eight on the Enneagram for those listeners who understand what that is. And I will champion social justice causes all day long. Unsurprisingly, a lot of gender equity issues. And so, you know, for me, I just thought, I don't know what to do anymore. I am 25 years old. I am faced with this almost insurmountable life situation that I have no experience with. But yet on some level, I feel like I very much deserve this result, this diagnosis, this incurable kind of cancer, because I certainly caused this by being me. That was the hardest thing for me to figure out. And I watched one by one. I had a bone marrow transplant. I was in the hospital for 35 days. I watched one by one, everybody else around me die. They didn't make it. And so I thought to myself, my very, I guess, intellectual, as you called it, just my constant thinking, why, why, why? Why are they dying and I'm not? Like, I thought I was the bad person here. What did these guys do to deserve this? Like, are they <laughs> divorced more than once? I really don't know. I was, again, 25 years old. I look at my daughter who is amazing and independent and just this incredibly kind and loving human doing amazing things in the world. But I think, man, she is it. She's, she's young. And so I now am able to give myself that grace of, of being remorseless, right? I no longer have guilt for the things that I went through. But the resiliency came at least in that season of my life out of there is no other option. And so oftentimes when we are faced with things in life that have these insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable outcomes and like situations, you just go, all right, I have two choices here. I am going to show up and do everything I can physically, mentally, spiritually, et cetera, to get through this season, to get through this bone marrow transplant, understanding I have no idea what the outcome here is going to be. Or my other option is to just call it in, right? I'm just going to lay in bed and just not really try. I've never been a quitter. I've never been one not to try. I have always said, I don't know what I'm made of, but I'm going to find out. And to me, it's almost the greatest sort of waste of a life or waste of humanity almost, because we are all made with so much power inherently that we've allowed others to take from us. We've allowed others to label us and say, you're weak, you're nothing, you're stupid. Again, all of, you know the negative connotations. But we have all of these things that we're so powerful in, and all we have to do is show up and try. It's not a guarantee that the outcome is going to be what mine was. I mean, I'm alive, obviously, 25 years later. But it is a guarantee that we have a, some semblance of control in those moments. And I think for me, when people feel such a sense of, I have no control, right, as recently as COVID, as we all know, and we just go, I'm done. I'm not even going to try because why bother? And my resiliency says, what do you mean, why bother? You're here. Give it a whirl. See what you can do. Because even if the outcome is a negative one, whatever that means, right? That's obviously couched in presuppositions and expectations as well. But even if it's not the outcome that you want or the one that you are most fearful of, you've at least given it a shot. Because if it's already going to happen and you're already sort of like giving into the fact that, well, this negative thing's going to happen, it's like becoming an atheist, right? I heard one time, Sam Harris um, was, and he's very well spoken, and he is this sort of renowned atheist. And he was speaking with Rick Warren, Saddleback Church. And it was this discussion about, you know, does God even exist? And it was back and forth, very bright men. And if you were uncertain of your belief system, you would absolutely go, well, I'm listening to Sam Harris. There's no God. Oh, I'm listening to Rick Warren. There's definitely a God. Like you could buy into what either one of them were saying because they were that well spoken and they had such certitude in their belief systems. 
And if you were unwavering, you would go in either camp, right? Well, at the end of that whole sort of debate and conversation, Rick Warren looked at Sam Harris and he said, I hear you. I get it. But I have one question. If you're right, there is no God and I'm wrong. I've lost nothing. But what if the opposite is true? What if I'm right and there is a God? Then you've lost everything, right? So it's almost like, why not show up and try, right? Because if you've already sort of got everything to lose, you've already called it a day, well, I'm just going to die of cancer. Well, I'm just never going to be loved again because this person left me. Well, I'm never going to get another job. I'm always going to be fill in the blank. Then you've already sort of secured your outcome. And if that's what it is, if that's what you're so afraid of, then give the opposite a try, right? Show up and be resilient. That's where I come from. Let me tell you, all this stuff that we're talking about today is really a setup for our conversation next week because we're, we're treading on a whole bunch of different issues here that, again, excite me like you cannot believe, especially the, the, the whole discussion about belief and faith and grace and all that stuff. And, and Beth and I are actually working together on some stuff regarding that but that's a totally different podcast. This one still is about personal branding and small business branding. And we need to, you know, find a way to make all this stuff make sense. But don't worry, we will. Because this whole idea of being remorseless, again, the definition you gave, which comes right out of your book, is remorseless without guilt in spite of wrongdoing. I love that definition because it's not saying without guilt because I don't deserve it. It's, yeah, I've done some stuff, but that's not going to stop me. And I want to talk more about next week about how we can apply that remorselessness to help more effectively personally brand ourselves and our businesses so that we can be more successful and aligned and, dare I say, authentic while doing business, while serving others. Because Let's face it, that's what we're in business to do, which is serve others, to help others, to provide them with the services and solutions and products that can enable them to achieve something. Who we are, what we do, how we do it, these are the things that this podcast is all about. And as you can see, I think you've met someone that you need to bring into your life a little bit. Her name is Beth Fisher. And again, her book, the full title is Remorseless, Learning to Lose Labels, Expectations, and Assumptions Without Losing Yourself. Where can people pick up this lovely book? Yeah, thank you. It's uh, available anywhere books are sold, as they say, i.e. Amazon. It's out on Amazon and also on my website, which is bethfisher.com. If someone wanted to contact you or get in, engaged with you via social media, is there a channel that you prefer? Yeah, honestly, the quickest way is to go to BethFisher.com and all of my social channels are out there. But I am, you know, on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Occasionally I, I tweet things, but not not as often as the other two. So yeah, BethFisher.com will take you to all of those places. But I would be a terrible podcaster if I didn't tee up this golf ball for you. Do you have a podcast that people could hear more of your lovely voice and ideas? I do, DP. It's called The Remorseless Podcast. Is anybody surprised? It is called The Remorseless Podcast. I also do... It uh, used to be a weekly show, and now it is monthly because, again, I am learning to slow down, which is shocking. I never thought I'd say those words, but it's now monthly, and it's called Remorselessly Biblical. So, you know, my branding, I know this is exactly what this show is about, is all around the remorseless brand, which means without guilt. I have 30 years of Catholicism, so for any listeners that 
uh, also grew up Catholic, you understand that we do the guilt game really well. And it's just one of those things that I am adamant holds us back from becoming the people that we were meant to be, from living life like you know you want to do, right? Like you know you want to fill in the blank. And what is holding you back? Guilt. If I do this, somebody's going to feel badly about it. If I say these things, somebody might think a certain thing about me. So you feel guilty before you've even done sort of the crime, but those are expectations. The crimes are just constructs socially, religiously, parentally, relationally, whatever. Those are constructs from other people. And we've got to understand that those other people also are dealing with the exact same things that we're talking about here, which is humanity, right? It is literally everyday humanity. It is being a very human being, which has all of the trials and tribulations that we face as being humans. But I, I'm a big believer that we're spiritual beings having this very human existence. So instead of being divisive about it, why don't we rally around each other and sort of say, you know what, you're really good at this. I'm terrible at this. As an example, I'm a big picture thinker. Details, eh, I don't have the patience for it. I know they're important. I know that that has, you know, sort of makes the whole world run. But at the same time, I'm like, if I'm not looking 86 steps ahead, I, I can't, I can't function very well. So for me to sort of say, that is who I am and understand that it is this sort of camaraderie, this unification of differences to say, it's like team, right? It's the desire and that sort of the definition of team, of living like a good teammate, of loving others well. I grew up playing sports and I'm like, I was a point guard. I brought the ball up the floor, but you put me under the hoop. I'm not getting many rebounds, I'm 5'4". So to me, it's like if I'm bringing the ball up the floor and I can see the big picture floor, but somebody else is a very detailed person. Like, I got to box this person out. I'm going to bring this ball down. I'm going to, you know, dish it out here. And this is what's going to happen. That's what makes a team run. Organizationally, same thing. Relationally, familiar, same, same thing. So instead of getting sort of all uptight that somebody else does something better than you, why don't you embrace that? That is how I really sort of purport to living because I'm interested in other people's abilities. Things that I can't do. I don't get mad about it. I'm like, teach me how if I care about it. Or I'm like, wow, keep doing that. I'm going to keep doing this thing over here. And together, we're going to actually do amazing things for the benefit of other people. Beth is clearly not a zero-sum game player. And instead, we're going to talk about the plus-plus-plus game next week. But I'm so excited to have her back again because having a half-hour conversation with Beth just does not happen in my world. So instead, we're going to go ahead and bring it all to next week's episode as well. I am, of course, your host, DP Knut, and I would love for you to like, subscribe, refer, and review this podcast because that really does help other people find it. And she is... Beth Fisher. And we'll be talking at you again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.